you came back. <laughs> Teachers always wonder <laughs> if by choice they will actually come back. <laughs> so thank you for coming back. I really appreciated what Daniel said when introducing this or mentioning it in church on Sunday. He said, we don't come to talk about Lewis as an academic exercise. They have a lot of conferences for those, a lot of boring conferences, but they have them and some really good ones. We come to see and prayerfully ask the Lord, how can we change ourselves by the power of his grace in our lives into being little Christ via the words of C.S. Lewis and scripture? That's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. So that's what we're going to attempt to continue to do tonight. Now, Brian will be very shortly passing out paper. I always give quizzes. Okay. <laughs> so, there'll be 10 multiple choice. If you do not pass, you must bring food next week. <laughs> okay, so just that, uh, that will happen shortly. I do hope that sometime during last week, based upon what we said, uh, in, in, cla in class, I'm sorry, I'm, <laughs> that's my mind. I just got finished teaching the semester yesterday. Uh, we, had, we ended with a quote, I am between the paws of the true Aslan. And I hope you were able to think about that quote during the week. Those words went through your head. Uh, because in Lewis's spirit-filled power of the imagination, he gives us new ideas about Christ. And don't you love Lewis's ability to take an image, to take a bunch of words on the page and wrap them in theological importance and core and be able to remind us in surprising ways who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Too many of us who are Christians, I'm convinced, don't simply get excited about Jesus anymore. We either think we have all the answers, or we think it's just rote and logical, and we heard the scriptures, and it's like water off a duck's back, and Lewis wants to say to us, no, 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 no. We serve a God of impossibilities, and he makes them real. We serve a God who wants us to get up each morning, says Lewis, and say, what amazing things are we going to do today? Not, oh, Jesus. <laughs> what are we going to do? Are you going to get me through the day? There is a huge difference. I believe, and we said last week, that Lewis gives us these images to help us remember what we have forgotten. We as humans are great at forgetting. We are great at forgetting. And what do we need to remember? And what do we need to, and what have we forgotten a lot of times in the daily humdrum of our lives? Christian truths, who Christ is, that we are definitely between the paws of the real Aslan every day, and he's promised never to leave us or forsake us. And when we see Aslan's pause on us in our mind's eye, we remember God's the victor. We remember he's the ultimate victor and he's the only victor. Aslan's pause surrounding us remind us that we are protected by God's power. That we are protected by his grace. We are protected by his love. And we are protected from the attacks of the enemy. Ashland's paws are there. And when the enemy comes to us, he says, God, Ashland says, you could get so close and no closer. You're dealing with my child. And this, I think, is what Lewis wants us to remember. He wants us to remember that God is our strength. He is our rock. He is our fortress. And tonight, we want to use Lewis's words of imagination to provide us with more images to remember during the week to help us remember what we humans so frequently forget. First image we're going to talk about in detail comes from 
and I didn't bring the book. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. One of my all-time favorite books, the first book to which most of us were exposed to C.S. Lewis. The first of the Narnia Chronicles, the first time we meet the Pevensey kids, Peter and Susan and Lucy and Edmund, and we find them in Narnia. And it's a beautiful world. It's, but it's a world experiencing great power struggle. Sound familiar? <laughs> a world where it's always winter. A world in which the inhabitants have forgotten who they are. They have forgotten who really rules them. And they, are, they have forgotten who really loves them. And like us, the Narnians need to remember who they are, who is really in charge, and where the real power lies. Now, we're going to pick up our story of the Fort Pevensey kids after they've already entered Narnia. They've come through the wardrobe. They're now having dinner with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. All right? Don't you love the beavers? All right? Uh, earlier, you remember that Lucy was the first of the four to go into Narnia, and she was befriended by a fawn, Mr. Tumnus. And you remember Mr. Tumnus sat there when he was talking to Lucy, pondering, huh, shall I listen to Jadis and the law of the land that says, if a daughter of Eve or son of Adam comes into Narnia, you must report them. Well, he's having this internal battle. All right, well, he decides not to follow the law of, of Narnia, of the witches, time in Narnia, and he sends Lucy back to the lamppost, through the wardrobe, back into her world. Well, right now, we're, we are present at, at dinner time, the after-dinner conversations. And Peter, the oldest of the Pevensey kids, he's really troubled. He's saying to the beavers, you know, Mr. Thomas really helped my sister. He protected her from the white witch. We have to do something. What could we do? And he has this conversation, and it goes on and on and on. And now we're going to hear the conversation. <clears throat> can we have some stratagem, said Peter? I mean, can we dress up as something or pretend to be you know, peddlers or anything? Or, or watch till she was gone out? Or, oh, hang on, there must be some way. This fun saved my sister at his own risk, Mr. Beaver. We can't just leave him to be to have that done to him. It's no good, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver. No good, you trying of old people. But now that Aslan is on the move. Oh yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. For once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news, had come over them. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Or don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the old wood, but not often here, you understand. Never in my time or in my father's time, but the word has reached us that he has come back. He's in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white witch all right. It is he, not you, who will save Mr. Thomas. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone. If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it will be the most she can do, and more than I expect of her. No, no, we'll put all the rights. As it says in an old rhyme in these parts, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. We'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. My daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is... Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of beasts is? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I, I, I thought he was a man. Is he, uh, is he quite safe? I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearies, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking together, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? 
you said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. It's always the plus to have someone very talented in your audience. <laughs> always the plus. So I'll repeat the quote we want to talk about. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's good. Well... Like the image of our being between the paws of the real Aslan, Lewis provides us with a powerfully packed theological image to remember what we have forgotten. Let me reset the scene. Mrs. Beaver says, no one can appear before Aslan without his knee shaking. They're either braver than most or just silly. Think through scripture. Bringing back any thoughts? People appearing before God or Jesus? Then Lucy says, then he isn't safe. Mrs. Beaver utters, Mr. Beaver utters his most memorable words, words that create an unforgettable image and an image that is theologically wrapped with the attributes of God. And it's a potent image. And it's an image that you and I forget in the humdrumness of classes, work, running the sweeper, making the beds, taking out the trash, and it's truths that we are going to talk about. First, let me repeat the quote. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. First, we're reminded that Ashland is the king. When is the last time we pondered our God as king? He is sovereign. His authority is absolute. And I don't think that is intended to be just metaphorical or whimsical. It's real. Aslan is the king. And then we remember 1 Timothy 6.15, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the lord of lords, and many other scriptural passages. Second, when Aslan come back, comes back to Narnia, he is a literal danger and terror. Literally. Particularly to his enemies, particularly to the white witch who won't be able to look Aslan in the eye. And then we remember Revelation. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Or, Revelation 17, these will wage, wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Third, we learn that Aslan terrifies People will love them. All right? Oh, go to Exodus 3. God spoke saying, I am the God of our father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This Aslan is the king, and he's all-powerful. He alone possesses absolute authority. And then we remember... Philippians 2, that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are remembering that he is an all-powerful God who at times is frightening, even to his children, even to those he loves. Aren't lion's paws terrifying? <laughs> if you've been close to one, their paws and their claws are frightening. But Lucy sees something really special. Toward the end of the, of, of the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, she gets close to his paws, and she says this. Terrible paws. If he didn't know how to velvet them. 
if he didn't know how to velvet them. To those who love Aslan, those claws are there. They are velveted. His paws are on us. They are soft. They are comforting. They are warming. They're inviting. And they're protecting. All at the same time. And indeed, almost immediately after the resurrection of Aslan, and we go away from the broken table, Lucy and Susan joyously play with Aslan. They romp, as we shall hear. I'm not going to do an accent. The bar is set too high. Okay. Aslan stood for a second, his eyes very bright, his limbs quivering, lashing himself with his tail. Then he made a leap high over their heads and landed on the other side of the stone table. Laughing, though she didn't know why, Lucy scrambled over it to reach him. Aslan leaped again. A mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach, now letting them almost catch his tail, now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautifully velveted paws and catching them again, and now stopping unexpectedly so that all three of them rolled over together in a happily laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. Notice what happens. The first thing after the resurrection. Side note before we talk about that. If I had been the, resu- the resurrected Christ, you know who I would have gone to first? Caiaphas. I was <laughs> Jesus chose not to do that. <laughs> Probably smart on his part. What do we see Lewis saying that Jesus did? Joy unspeakable joy and happiness. The movie, I'm sorry, got it totally wrong after that. They had, they had the girls jumping on Aslan and running off to kill people. Um, they had fun. They had pure joy. Imagine Aslan, and they have his, their hands in his mane, and they're romping all around. He's laughing, they're laughing, they're jumping. Folks, that's Christianity. It's not drab. It's not boring. And if it is, see Father Daniel soon. <laughs> it's not supposed to be. Or Deacon Joanne, she's back there too. She'll help you out. Look at her smile. Okay. All right. Uh, what they are expressing is the actual embodiment of a term I mentioned last week, the German word Sehnsucht. And I had... A learned scholar in the audience come up and say, spell that word for me. <laughs> he wanted to see if I was an Abyssidarian. And so I did. One of the things I like about C.S. Lewis, he's able to express concepts in English that we just don't have words for. We really don't have words for a lot of good things. And Sehnsucht is a German word that roughly translates into longing. Longing. Lewis describes it as an inconsolable longing in the human heart for which we know not. We know the Jesus he reveals to us. We don't know all of Jesus' attributes. We couldn't bear them. So we have this longing for a God we have never seen, for a God we thoroughly do not understand, but accept and believe. And so Zainzuk is this longing we have for this deity, longing for paradise, longing for perfection. It's a haunting sense of longing that Lewis claimed touched him all of his life. It has elements of nostalgia in it, it has elements of joy, but a tense awareness that something's missing. Don't you often have that in your Christianity? We want Christ, we want the best, but we're stuck here for a while. That's how we think. And so Lewis says, now now, wait a minute, these are stabs of joy, these are longings, and they're, they're meant to bring us to, hearken us to a deeper world. In Lewis's last novel, Till We Have Faces, the heroine says this, 
it almost hurt me like a bird in a cage when the other birds of its kind are flying home to find the place where all the beauty came from, my country, the place where I ought to have been born, the longing for home. The longing for home. Have you ever felt joy unspeakable and full of glory? I know Donna Adams has, right? (laughs) Just watch her in church. It excites me. (laughs) Have tears ever flooded your eyes for sheer joy? Looking at your bride, looking at your groom, listening, well, perhaps to a sermon. (laughs) Listening to a sermon, yes. His sermons have brought me to tears many a time in my years. That true story. Okay. During a song, during a sermon, how about a talk with a friend? And you can't explain what's happening inside. Or a walk, reading scripture, reading a book, reading a poem. Doesn't have to be necessarily written by a Christian. God uses anything. Did you ever yearn for your heavenly home and feel so homesick for a place you've never been? This is what Lewis is talking about. This is what this Zehnzucht is all about. If so, you have experienced Zehnzucht. And it seems that Lewis's writings give me permission to simply accept Zehnzucht in my life and not try to control it, not try to pinpoint it. And I want to share with you the greatest moment of Zehnzucht that my wife and I have ever had. We were teaching at Tekoa Falls College back in the late 1970s. We had gone to a Shakespeare play at UGA. I was a student at UGA. We had just come home, one o'clock in the morning. For some reason, and I don't remember why, the president's son's fiance was staying at our house. Fine. The phone rings at 1.30 in the morning. And I go, oh. <laughs> it's never good. Pick up the phone, it's the president's son was holding the receiver out so we could hear the floodwaters coming over the Tikal Falls Dam that later took 439 people home to heaven. We heard the floodwaters. Amazing. We were in shock. For some strange reason, Tikal Falls hired us when we were in our mid-twenties. They should never have done that. But we're glad that they did. The president of the University of Tacovas College calls us the next morning and says, we need somebody to be at the makeshift funeral home, which was an old gymnasium, so you could identify, help the parents identify the bodies. Well, as dutiful faculty members, we said, yes. Looked at each other and were horrified. How can we do this? On, we knew that People who had their offices right next to mine, two offices down, those people were taken to heaven. One of my wife's best friends, childhood friends, was taken to heaven. We knew who had died. So we said yes. We drove over to the makeshift morgue. We looked at each other and said, we, right now, forgive me if I cry. We can't do this, Lord. There is no way on this planet we could walk in and take canvas off these bodies and show, we just can't do this. And we prayed you're going to have to do something. And he did. We walked through the door, and my theologians in here will know what I'm talking about. They're called thin places, theologically. It's as if you could stretch forth your hands and separate the curtain that separates this reality from the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you could step right into Narnia. That's how it felt. There was an unbelievable peace that flooded Darlene and me. Unbelievable peace that flooded both of us. And sometimes joy and despair and sorrow come together. That's what they did for Christ. Joy and sorrow came together as one, and they sort of blend and they vanish. We were able to pick up canvas, look at the body, and the Lord instantly said to both of us individually, I'm not looking at my son and my daughter. They're home. They're home. You are looking at 
an empty shell. And we wept, and we wept with a lot of people that day. And we went to many a funeral. One I'll never forget, I walked into a funeral home where I, I, I taught this young man, and he was there. He was sitting in the middle of the funeral home, surrounded by five coffins, his wife and four, four girls. But I also walked to a funeral when the body was being lowered into the grave. The widow, weeping and a broad smile. Weeping and this ginormous smile. This is the God we serve. This is Aslan. This is the God who allows us to do the impossible through the power of his Holy Spirit. This is the God who says, would you please ask me to do something impossible? Would you please not, would you please not? Lewis says we are so, we enjoy making mud pies when we could be making the real things. We enjoy fooling around when we can have him and we limit ourselves. I've experienced that zainsuk, that longing. I know what it is to look at a corpse, well, 39 of them, and say, okay. And then God says, but it's okay. I'm in charge. The enemy thinks he's one. Can you imagine what happened on Calvary? I like the Passion of Christ, the movie, because Jesus is carrying the cross. Do you remember what happens? Satan's walking right by him. He's walking right by him. You think that didn't happen? He's on the cross. I wonder what Jesus heard in the spiritual world. You know, I'm imagining, so just so you know. What did he hear? All the mockery and all that. He could have said what I would have said to Caiaphas, <laughs> but he didn't. He's the God of the impossible. He's the God who wants to change you and me into his likeness. And you may remember that last week I gave you a quote from Mere Christianity, which is the center of Lewis's thought. He writes, The central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. You ain't going to understand it all. And if you do, you're not serving the right God. Or if you do, you're an arrogant fill-in-the-blank. <laughs> because there's just no way we can embrace and if we could understand God he wouldn't be God says Lewis so what's the formula for Christianity again another quote from mere, uh, from mere Christianity we are told that Christ was killed for us that his death washed out our sins and that by dying he disabled death that is the formula that is Christianity and once we embrace the formula once we say as Lewis finally said I'm, I give up he takes all those crazy strands of your life that are all hanging out there and he says I'm going to give you a center I'm going to tie those strands together and we're going to get through this you and me together I'm not going to leave you on your own and then Lewis writes to us let God have his way and come to share in the life of Christ. If you do, we shall then be sharing a life which always existed and always will exist. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons and daughters of God. We shall love the Father as he does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this world and became a man in order to spread to humanity the kind of life he himself has by what I call a good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. If Lewis were here, and he didn't give very many talks or sermons, okay? Uh, I hope he would say to you, so how are you doing on your adventure? How are you doing with this thing called Christianity? How are you doing with this thing called the adventure of your life? For following Christ, Lewis says, becoming a little Christ demands something of us. There is a cost. It involves surrender. And guess what, folks, says Lewis? It doesn't involve surrender to your concept, to your ideas or my ideas or the most brilliant person in the room's ideas. It involves surrender to the scriptures. 
It's not our formula. It's not our devices. It's not our crazy. It's not our brilliance. It's not our degrees. It's what Jesus says. All the books I read are going to burn except one. They're all going to burn. The Lord's it will not. To become little Christ, says Lewis, means to surrender to God's truths, to surrender to his way of thinking and his desires for us. Here's what I don't get about non-Christians, or maybe you. We all want to be our best selves, don't we? You have an image of who you think you should be. I have had an image, and still do, of what I think I should be. And we try, day by day, to chip it off and become that person. We have, like Benjamin Franklin started all American literature, which is little charts and, you know, 13 virtues and all the rest of it, and then he failed on most of them. Uh, <laughs> well, we have this idea. And here's, here's the rub. Here's the rub. You're never going to become the person, the authentic self, says Lewis, that you want to be unless Christ is at the center. All you're doing is becoming more miserable in the process of becoming the self you are creating, says Lewis, not the person God wants to create. Have we ever stopped, Lewis would say to us, and ask ourselves, Lord, am I the person you want me to be? What do I have to change? And if you don't get an answer, call me. Or call Pastor Daniel or, or Deacon Joanne. <coughs> he wants to answer that question, says Lewis. He's in the process of changing you and changing me into his likeness. Would we please ask, says Lewis. Where do you hear the quotes we're about to read? They're chilling. All right? Here's what I think. This is not Lewis, this is Charles. I'll tell you when that happens. <laughs> this is Charles. The brighter the person, look around this room. Oh my goodness. You know, it's, as I said, it's intimidating standing up here. The brighter the person, here's more convinced, I'm more convinced this is what happens. Having taught college for 45 years now and dealing with lots and lots of young people, the brighter the person, we're able to we compartmentalize our lives. This is work, this is family, this is job, this is church, this is pleasure. We, we have a tendency to do that. And we have a tendency to do what we will please. And here's how we do it. The brighter the person, I'm convinced, now Lewis, I'm convinced we have the ability to throw a switch in our brain and do exactly what we want to do when we want to do it and block everything out. I am convinced that's true. I've seen it happen in many a person's life. All of our theology goes to the wayside. All of our thinking goes to the wayside. And I'm convinced the brighter the person, the easier that is to pull off because Christ isn't at the center. And we silence all those voices in our head. We silence the Holy Spirit. We throw that switch. And the better we are at compartmentalizing our lives, the better we are at not becoming the, the person Christ has in mind for us. When, uh, when Jacob became a Christian, look at her now. Who does not love her? <laughs> if you don't, see Father Daniel. <laughs> He'll explain why. She said, I'm yours, Lord. And I don't know her story, but I bet you there's a bunch of pain there. A bunch of, a bunch of losses there. And she said, okay, Lord, I can't compartmentalize. I, either I want you, or I get more and more miserable. I can choose myself, and many of us do. But in choosing ourselves, we're making ourselves miserable. Lewis says that, not me. <laughs> we play wondrous games with ourselves. <coughs> And the Lord Jesus Christ comes to be our center, to unite us, not to compartmentalize all the various strands of who we are. Surrender to Christ as the unifying core of our existence is the avenue for becoming little Christ. Listen to Lewis.
so from your Christianity, Lewis writes, the terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time be good. We are all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping in spite of this to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. As he said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I am a field and contain nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and resown. Do you hear the last line? If we are to become like Christ, Lewis lays it on the line. If I want to produce fruit, I have to go deeper than just coming to church on Sunday. Probably even deeper than reading the Book of Common Prayer every day. If you do. You have to be plowed up and re-sown. Don't think that Lewis would exempt any of us in this room from that. So the question tonight, Lewis would say to us, do we want to be plowed up and sown, re-sown? Or do we even think we need to? I'm looking at very successful people in this room. I've had a good career of teaching. Many preachers in here, I've heard you all, excellent. Do we want to be plowed up? Said another way, do we want the various compartments of our life or strands of our life to find unity and fulfillment in the only thing that's going to satisfy them? And that's Christ himself. Do we want to produce wheat and not grass? Do we want figs to grow in our field but not grass? Do we want to become food, both literally and metaphorically, for our hurting world? Ah, Lewis isn't done. Drew. That is why the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All of your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals, and the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back, in listening to that other voice, taking the other, that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come f coming flowing in, and so on, all day. Standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings, coming in out of the wind. Notice the last line. Standing back from all our fussings and frettings. That describes everybody in here, folks. That doesn't leave any of us out. All of our fussings and frettings. And we blow it, says Lewis. I told you last week when Lewis became a Christian, the first thing he did every morning before he got out of bed, before he took the cover, he used the cover as the symbol, Lord, come into my life. He literally used that. He would not move the cover uh, from 1931 <coughs> until he passed in 1963 from his body until he said, Lord, come in and join me. I don't know about you, but we get so darn busy. The past couple weeks for me have been wonderfully busy in some ways. And you wonder how you're going to make it. Lewis says, well, you're probably not. You're probably going to blow it, break time. Why don't you ask God to come into this? His concept of surrender is a little different way than many of us have heard before. How before we get out of bed. And Lewis says, okay, pray, but there's more.
We can only do it for moments at first. That is, stay back from our natural fussings and frettings and complainings and grumblings and anger and discontent. But from those moments, the new sort of life will be spreading through our system because now we are letting him work at the right part of us. It is the difference between paint, which is merely laid on the surface, and a dye or stain which soaks right through. He never talked vague, idealistic gas. What he said, be perfect, he meant. He meant that we must go in for the full treatment. It is hard, but the sort of compromise we are all hankering after is harder. In fact, it is impossible. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like eggs at present, and you cannot go on indefinitely just being an ordinary egg. We must be hatched or go bad. Oops. So the question becomes for all of us, do we want to be hatched? Or do we want to say our wonderful selves, wonderful only in our own eyes? <laughs> Lewis says it's our choice. We always, it's always good to have an example of what one is discussing about hatching, and I will get to that in a minute. I'm going to give you a concrete example. But Lewis reminds us one more thing in Mere Christianity. By the way, Mere Christianity was published in 1952, but it was written during World War II. It was a series of pamphlets written in 1942, 43, 44, and part of 45. The BBC, in all their great wisdom, uh, asked Lewis to give a series of 15-minute radio talks. And that's what they are. And so he, he had to be very precise. So when you read this book and you see how condensed the chapters are and how he sort of belts you over the head with almost every chapter, it's because he had to. He had 15 minutes and only 15 minutes. He put it together in 1952, and he didn't, Lewis never does a great job of editing. You'll be reading along in one of these, and you'll, you'll read like, oh, as I told you last week, and you go, oh? <laughs> <laughs> is there a ghost coming <laughs> What is Lewis doing? Uh, great book. This book has been translated into 36 languages, tens of millions, millions of copies, countless people that you could probably name. The Lord used this book. Is it a perfect book? No. He makes a great philosophical error in chapter one and logic. Uh, he makes some other crazy statements uh, because he's Lewis and he's human and I'm so glad when he did that. I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. <laughs> All right. But he gets to the end of this book and talking about surrender and he puts it in a way, I'm sure some of you have heard this before, but every time I hear it, I go, oh, Lord, He's going to borrow a story from George MacDonald. George MacDonald, what did he write? You all know what he wrote. Fantastic. Fantastic. Lewis was 16 years old. He was going on a train from London to home. He found a bookshelf and he picked up Fantastics. Of course, George MacDonald, a Scottish Presbyterian, who got ejected from his church because he preached a sermon once that animals were going to heaven. <laughs> so, the Presbyterians did not fire him. They cut his salary in half. He had lots of children. He had to leave. Wrote uh, <laughs> uh, George MacDonald, Lewis's mentor. If you have to pick a mentor for Lewis, it's George MacDonald, his theology and his fiction. If you want to read a good book this week, the Princes and the Goblin. Or The Princes and the Goblin. It's a kid's book, but will change your life. Matter of fact, G.K. Chesterton, anyone know the name G.K. Chesterton, one of the greatest? G.K. Chesterton read The Princes and the Goblin and said, that was the book that changed his life. And when we get to The Great Divorce next week, you will find out that the teacher in The Great Divorce happens to have the name George MacDonald. <laughs> All right? And George MacDonald's books are phenomenal. Uh, he didn't work very much in his life. His patron, believe it or not, was Mrs. Lord Byron. Uh, it gets really bizarre. The writers are crazy. Uh, have you ever known a same poet? I have not. I know. <laughs> they, have to see the, they have to see the world differently. All right. 
So that's who George MacDonald is. And here's what he says. He says, I find I must borrow yet another parable from George MacDonald. Here's what he's saying. Here's what Lewis is saying to you and me. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you could understand what he's doing, right? Carpenter, he's getting all the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. And you know that these jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably, and it doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that if you give yourself to Christ and say, I don't like the me I am, make me the me that you want me to be. He says, he's building quite a different house from the one you thought he was going to build. He says, he's throwing out a wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were going to be in, made into a little decent college and be satisfied. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That's what he wants for you and me. We are satisfied with our little cottages. And maybe all of us in this, I don't know where you are, but... Are you, question for you is, are you satisfied with the you you are today? The you that God is doing? Or, oh yes, and have you stopped dreaming? Show me a scripture where it says to stop dreaming. I want to see that verse. I want to see the verse where it, stops, where it says stop dreaming for the kingdom. Stop dreaming that you don't have an influence in society. And I will point out when I first met these two, this couple here, the presence of Christ was so ginormously real. And everybody I talk to about them says the same thing. Do they have room? Are, are you content with what Christ is doing? I hope not. I look at you too and I see Buckingham Palace on <laughs> to be Lewis. He's building all of these things. But you know, if you're the house, it hurts like all Jehu. I don't like things God has done to me in my past. I'm 72 now. Hard to believe, right? No, you can believe it. <laughs> uh, I don't like some of the things he's chosen to do, but I'm standing in front of you because he's chosen to do the things that he did. I would not be the Charles if he chose not to let me go through those hard times. So the question tonight, how we know for time, I think we're about over, yes. The question for us tonight is, well, what do we want God to do? Do we want a, lo a totally logical God, rational God? Lewis says, yes, amen, brother, preach, brother. Do we want a God of impossibilities to preach a brother? Do we want a God who allows us to dream and to become more than we can possibly? Don't be satisfied with the Brian you are, says God, says Lewis. Dream big dreams. You've, you've dreamed pretty big dreams in your profession, haven't you? A lot of you have been dreamed huge dreams in your profession. How about in the Christian walk? How about when we pass? Would it be okay, Lord, Lewis said, for me to pray that when I walk by, people just sense your presence? You have all known people that's true about, right? Most of you have known people when you were in their presence. It's this holy hush that falls over you. Their house was not the house they intended God to build. He had, for some of us in here, he may need to rip up the basement. Uh, he made a, he, you may need a new kitchen. You may need an extra bedroom. So perhaps Lewis would ask us tonight, Lord... Surrender means giving myself to you. And we've all heard sermons, or most of us have heard sermons on surrender. But how about surrender with allowing the Lord to do the impossible in us? So, Father, tonight, we're amazed at your grace. We're amazed at your grace that brought all of us here this evening.
We're amazed at your grace that sustains, that has sustained us in the rough times, the hard times, the joyous times. Forgive us, Father, for forgetting that we are your child. Forgive us tonight for being content to be the person we are right now. Plow us up. We want to produce wheat. We want to grow figs, metaphorically. Those of us who are young, give them careers, Father, in here where their presence shines for you, where morals shine for you, and that through their very presence, people come to know you. For those who are on the other side of the spectrum, retired, remind them that you promised to give fruitful pastures in old age, that you ain't done with this yet, are you, Lord? And for those in the middle of life, excite us with your presence now. Help us to pray for the impossible in our lives. We do it in the lives of our grandchildren, friends, but Father, for us today, may we look a little bit more like Christ if you bring us back here next week. May we be able to tell the stories about what you have chosen to do and what we have allowed you to do in us and through us, not for our glory, but for yours. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit we pray. Next week, amen. Next week I will talk about Lewis's hatching. How we came to Christianity. It's bizarre. It wasn't the Roman way. It wasn't, you know, the three profile. It was bizarre. And I go, yes, God loves the bizarre. <laughs> and then I will get start. I will be talking about, Lord willing, uh, the great divorce. Great. Thank you all. Yeah.